I've, uh, you know, I've, I've been really looking forward um, to this just because, uh, like, a lot of people, I think, um, you know, want to learn more about what's going on. But it's definitely, um, you know, it's tough as an American citizen that consumes American media to learn about really anything without it being like, without the point of it being like, and here's why you should hate Democrats or here's why you should hate sure. Republicans. Sure. So it's always refreshing sure. to just learn about a topic for what it is. And sure. you know, so, um, yeah. you know, and again, like with this podcast, there's uh, a lot of listeners coming from uh, a lot of different backgrounds. So, um, right. yeah, you know, so I, I think, I think, you know, uh, spreading that, uh, I can relate as a musician where like uh, a lot of times I enjoy talking about music uh, to non-musicians um, sometimes like a lot more than musicians because like spreading that um, information like outward is always a yeah. lot of fun. So, um, but anyway, man, yeah, let's uh, get to it. And, you know, before I go on, uh, you can take a second if you just want to introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, sure. So uh, my name is Jared McBride. I'm an assistant adjunct professor in the history department at, at UCLA. I've been uh, traveling to and, and studying uh, the regions of, of Russia, Ukraine, and Eastern Europe more broadly for about roughly two decades now. I started studying the topic in, in college and um, I did my doctorate actually here at UCLA in Los Angeles. And I have been uh, working on these themes uh, ever since so. yeah yeah man that's um uh yeah it's 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 again it's a real treat to to have you here um and i think uh you know really my, my first question for you would be just um how does uh like one of course going into history is one thing and then i'm always interested in how people choose uh where you know where they're going to specialize in history mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. i guess it's kind of a two-part question of like How'd you get, uh, how'd you know, like for you, it was going to be history or, mm -hmm. or maybe if you knew that it would be history and Eastern European history, like at the mm -hmm. same time, but mm -hmm. yeah. How'd sure. You, yeah. Go ahead. So yeah, the history one is I, I almost don't have a, I have to search through my own history. I don't necessarily have a great answer for that. Um, I knew I, as far as I remember, I was always interested in history. It was my, I, I remember uh, being fascinated even in elementary school with, with the topic. And I also almost always had an interest in uh, the second world war. And I should say that that's my, my particular specialties. I focus on 20th century and, 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 and my work is mostly on, on the second world war and also the early cold war period, uh, in particular in Western Ukraine. Um, but I remember having an interest even in the second world war in, uh, in grade school, uh, and being uh, just fascinated with that as a topic, the, the interest in Russian Eastern Europe is, is kind of a, a little bit, uh, a little different of a story. I actually only came to that in college. And so I really had no prior connection to the region or otherwise I have part of my mom's family over a century ago is, is from, is from this region. And I actually figured out in a couple of years ago that part of the family was from Ukraine. Uh, but uh, it was really no, it wasn't a personal connection. It was actually just in the classroom. And so one of the first courses I took at college 
was on a, was on another subject, but it was with a professor who studied uh, studied the region and was also beginning his own research on the Second World War in Russia and Ukraine. And, and he invited me to take a class, and you know, sort of like I say, the, the rest was history. But it really kind of launched me. Uh, it really launched me on on the career. I, I traveled to Russia um, for the first time as a second year student and as an undergrad. I traveled again in my final year to do senior thesis research, and and I, it really just became hooked. Um, obviously, to do historical research in Russia and Eastern Europe, you got to spend a lot of time learning languages, and that's uh, a little harder of a sell than uh, than some other places around the world in terms of time and effort. So, uh, but it also, in a lot of ways, I think it's sort of an act of devotion to try to enter into the culture and the history and to be accepted and be able to converse. Um, so, I spent a lot of time uh, learning Russian, and then afterwards Ukrainian. Um, spent a lot of time traveling, spending time there, um, and sitting in the archives, and so. Uh, so it's something that I feel, you know, I've obviously felt very passionate about. I've been doing it for, for a long time. Uh, when you talk about it with people, they often seem, they often think that you have, you must have a personal connection uh, to want to devote your life to something or, or, or have this kind of connection to a time, you know, a time or a place that's outside of where you, where you grew up or your own experiences. Um, but that's, I, with I, a lot of scholars, I think that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes it is, or often, maybe often it is, but there's certainly some of us that you just sort of, it's just a, you know, it's just a, a turn on a street somewhere, and that's where you are, and that's where you end up for the rest of your life. So, which is how life uh, life goes in general sometimes. So, yeah, no, I, I definitely uh, relate to that. Uh, I mean, being a musician, I'm the uh, first musician in, in my family, uh, like across the board. So, um, yeah, sometimes I think, um, yeah, you just like what you like, and and yeah. you know, try not to question it. I guess, but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but. Yeah, man, that that's uh, and I think that um, of course I, I'm I'm sure it goes back a lot further than um, even the 20th century in terms of uh, you know the, the complicated history of that region. But um, I guess with anything that we're you know, so I, I actually had um, uh, a historian on recently um, as, as well, and we talked about this and. Um, you know, I learned that this goes back a lot further than, you know, obviously the, the way that it's being talked about in the media, it's as if like this thing that happened in 2014 is why mm -hmm, we're here. Mm -hmm. And I was like, nah, it's gotta be a lot more complicated than that. And sure, you know, obviously it is. And, um, I guess with your specialization in world war two, and again, I'm sure we could go back uh, even further, but I, I know that like most people know that. Um, the consequences of World War II really shaped the the hierarchy um, in the world, and I, I wonder how that specifically may have affected, um, you know, like relations in that region, and and if mm -hmm. that's like largely um, responsible for what we're seeing today. So, um, yeah, if you can talk about that, sure, I could. Yeah, because situated within the war, I mean, into your in your point about periodization is is a is a great one, and and I also think kind of framing it in terms of how we consume information, whether it's on whether we're watching CNN or reading, who knows if people are physically reading newspapers anymore, but we're reading the newspaper or you're seeing something on Twitter. Um, it's, it's, it's been, it's tough. It's tough for people to, to get in such small sound bites, the kind of different levels and layers uh, to a situation like we have with Russia in, in Ukraine today. And, and yeah, so you mentioned, of course, 2014 and even some of the kind of, discussions and, and um, 
engagements I've been a, a part of over the last couple of months. We actually often, I often sometimes start there because I just, especially when it's adult audience or kind of not my non-student audiences, this is people I say like, you were you were here for this. This was only eight years ago. So let me just rejug your memory about what happened on the Maidan in this revolution. And that's for my older audiences seem to appreciate that. They say, oh yes, I remember all that. But, um, but of course, as you said, the layers go back. You can go back to the Orange Revolution, go back to 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union, and of course the Second World War, and then earlier in the 20th century. Um, so, it's, so in terms of the Second World War, I mean, I think it's, in, well, it's, it's, it's very important uh, to, to keep in mind uh, that the war uh, had absolutely devastating effects um, on this region, um, in particular, uh, Ukraine, millions of Ukrainians would lose their, would lose their lives during the Second World War as a part of a brutal occupation uh, by Nazi Germany, uh, as well as about, we think, roughly 1.5 million uh, Jews who had been living in uh, Ukraine uh, during this time period um, as well. Um, in, in addition to Nazi violence and sort of the brutalization um, of, of this country, um, we also uh, saw uh, resist, resistance movements, uh, various resistance movements during the Nazi occupation. Um, some were connected to the Soviet state. So these were often referred to as, as partisans uh, or the Soviet partisan movement in which hundreds of thousands of, of Ukrainians participated uh, to try to rid the country of the Nazi um, occupier. Um, it's important to keep in mind also similarly when we talk about Ukrainians who served in the Red Army, uh, who also fought against uh, fought against the fascists. It's important to keep in mind that just because you fought in the Soviet partisans or you were joined the Red Army did not necessarily mean you ideologically aligned with the Soviet project or you, you considered yourself a, a communist. Uh, many people participated in, in patriotic resistance because they wanted a foreign occupier um, out, of, out of their land and they often joined the closest resistance movement that they could. Um, and then uh, also important to this discussion is uh, a uh, insurgent movement that was connected to uh, what we would describe as sort of right-wing nationalist groups uh, that were important in Ukraine during the interwar period. Um, these were groups um, Typically, we refer to this one group, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, uh, that was born in the interwar period uh, in what was then uh, Ukrainian territory that was occupied by Poland. Um, this was a group that sought uh, to create an independent Ukrainian state free of the Soviets and free of the Poles. Um, so they were trying to, and we could also throw in the Romanians and the Hungarians and some other parties as well, but basically free uh, and uh, free Ukraine from foreign rulers. Um, and it's important to keep in mind that up until the beginning of the Second World War, uh, Ukraine never really had any independent sovereignty. It always been sort of uh, occupied by various uh, empires to certain degrees. This very confusing period after World War One, which we see referred to as sort of a civil war that goes on after after World War One in this region, led to some ill-fated attempts in short-lived Ukrainian states. Um, but basically, by the time we get to the interwar period. Ukraine is occupied on one side by Poland and the other side by the Soviet Union and creates this uh, creates this country called Soviet Ukraine. Um, so this in this uh, sort of right wing, and I would say in, in many ways, especially by the 1930s, um, certainly sort of inflected by more ethno-nationalism, uh, which, concept, which conceptualizes Ukraine as a place for people who identify ethnically as Ukrainian and speak the Ukrainian language or of Ukrainian cultures. Um, they were very important. Uh, they were sort of an important movement in the Western uh, part of Ukraine initially welcomed the Nazi occupation, not necessarily because they agreed with all of the Nazis' goals and all of their ideologies, though some of them they 
Um, they surely did, um, not necessarily all of them, uh, welcomed the Nazis because they thought that they might uh, get an independent state, right? And they had been, uh, this one particular group had been cooperating with uh, Nazi Germany to some degree in the late 1930s, um, basically because they had a common enemy, which was the Soviet Union. The Nazis were, of course, very famously anti-communist and wanted to destroy the Soviet Union. Uh, and then these nationalist groups in Western Ukraine also wanted to free uh, Ukraine of the Soviets and the communists. Uh, this cooperation was very short-lived as the Nazis had no plans of uh, providing uh, uh, this group with an independent sovereign Ukrainian state and rather sought to uh, integrate Ukraine as just sort of a part of a basically a colony uh, of the Nazis and would create something called the Reichskommissariat Ukraine. Um, so this nationalist group would um, uh, eventually go underground about midway or beginning towards midway point of the war and create their own army. Um, they called it, so it was an insurgent army um, that was created to fight the occupiers, both the Germans um, and as well, and then in their view, as well as the, the Soviets. So they would also clash with Soviet partisan forces, clash with the Germans, also clash with some of the Polish forces that are there. It's a very, very confusing situation for the better part of two years. Um, and then after the war, the Soviets eventually, Red Army will march through and quote unquote, liberate Ukraine. A lot of people don't prefer to use that term, given, a, given might say reoccupy as well, reoccupy all of Ukraine on their way to Berlin. Uh, and this insurgency uh, and this insurgent army would continue a pr protracted guerrilla war, um, predominantly in the Western part of Ukraine against the Soviets um, and tried to, you know, again, just a, a hoping uh, for a sort of a Hail Mary of support from the West, uh, which would in, in theory have meant starting World War III uh, and that the allies would come to their rescue and eventually march back through uh, Ukraine from the other direction uh, and create an in independent Ukrainian state. Um, and so it's really the kind of, a lot of the, um, uh, a lot of the discussion when we hear about um, when we hear about the references to denazification, a lot of this language about um, often they see we hear um, Putin specifically use this term Benderovsi in one of his early speeches right before the war to describe Ukrainians. Um, he's referring to Stepan Bandera, who was one of the leaders of this nationalist force, and so um, a lot of this kind of language and, and, re and references and icons and sort of metaphors, a lot of this is being pulled from this conflict um, from the Second World War, from this occupation, and from a lot of um, you know people connected to these nationalist groups who, who fought at this uh, who fought at this time. And so I can go in a million directions right now, but I will stop right there. So, no, I mean that I think that that I mean, of course, uh, it, it's it's tough to be able to say in in a few sentences like you know exactly like the the full backstory but i think you you really painted that picture in terms of like just the 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 core of i guess these issues that are you know what what we're seeing now the result um and i think you know what i've definitely realized um myself and you know i remember learning about um the you know the brief amount of time you spend uh, learning about like the different regions in Europe, you know, as far back as like elementary school history class. And I remember like being taught um, in a way like that, like Russians and Ukrainians were, you know, to simplify, basically the same people. And, and, mm -hmm. I, and I say that because now I think that, um, you know, one of the last things that you said that the, one of the things that maybe a lot of us aren't understanding here in the States 
is uh, looking at these two nations as two different ethnic groups, uh, two different, mm-hmm. um, because like, like I remember seeing on uh, 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 Twitter, which of course, I mean, Twitter's Twitter, but mm-hmm. seeing people mm-hmm. go like, um, you know, how can it be genocide if they're literally the same people? And sure. then people going like, well, they're not. That That's the common sure. misconception. And I guess um, uh, if you can talk about that a little bit sure. more in terms of like maybe how that misconception has like shaped the, the narratives and, and maybe issues with that miscon- uh, misconception. Sure. And so, I mean, and this is where people, at least in my position, will tend to jump very far back. And so, I mean, part, so part of the, you know, Part of the difficulty in un, in sort of uh, disentangling this uh, these two groups and understanding uh, their development, part of it starts in in what is often the roots of what we would consider all of Slavic culture, right? And so um, we you would turn to, and this is often where people go, go all the way back, and we turn to about a thousand years ago uh, in these lands along the Dnepr River, uh, where uh, we see the sort of first Slavic tribes, which they themselves had been created by a mix of people, all predominantly from uh, Vikings from the north, from Scandinavia. Uh, a prince there named Vladimir will, will adopt Christianity um, and create the Orthodox, or take on Orthodox Christianity in this region. Uh, and Kiev will be the kind of this kind of cradle of, of Slavic culture. Uh, eventually, we will see an occupation uh, of the region by the Mongols. Um, the, the kind of center of power will be broken there. And only a couple hundred years later will we see the kind of rise of Moscow uh, and people who are going to claim the legacy uh, of, of Kiev. And so you have this complicated situation where you know, even in Moscow today, the Soviet Union, Imperial Russian Empire, that the kind of the, the, the beginning roots of Christianity, of Slavic culture, of the Slavic peoples comes from, from a place in, in Kiev, which is in which is now the capital uh, of Ukraine, which is a, which is a country by uh, by another name. Um, and so this is often, uh, conf- this is, I think, also creates a lot of confusion. And this has also created a lot of historical contestation um, over over the centuries. Um, we wouldn't, I mean, at the time, and this is also, I just add some of the kind of maybe the more boring scholarly stuff, people wouldn't have conceptualized themselves as Ukrainians or Russians at the time. And a thousand years ago, they would have conceptualized themselves as Christians or pagans or by their local villages or dialects or whoever they were, um, it's really only over the last five, 600 years where we're going to see people uh, begin to identify or self-identify in different ways. And we see the kind of coalescing of different groups, sometimes referred to as ethnic groups or sometimes national, um, national groups. And Ukraine is a very complicated place for this story. And I mean, in a lot of ways, all nations are, but Ukraine is particularly complicated uh, given the amount of sort of um, different occupations and different uh, claims to the lands and the peoples uh, and the peoples there over time. Um, so with the rise of the Russian Imperial Empire in the 16th and 17th century, uh, we're going to see an empire emanating out of Moscow um, and a string of czars there that we're going to make lay claim to these territories um, to their west um, over time, and they're going to eventually occupy 
uh, and make a part of this Imperial Russian Empire, what is roughly sort of three fourths of contemporary Ukraine, um, this region to the west, which is no mistake, which we just I just mentioned in my previous previous comments, this region to this west that saw the growth of this nationalist movement in the interwar period and is also going to see growth of nationalist movements um, prior to World War One was not occupied by the Russian Imperial Empire, um, was actually occupied by the Austro-Hungarians up until uh, the First World War. Um, so being a part of the Russian Imperial, uh, Imperial Empire, um, it's important to keep in mind this is an empire, a landlocked empire that includes, uh, uh, we would sort of ethnic cultural groups, um, um, over a hundred of them. And so um, it doesn't mean that everyone, the people controlling the empire at the center, of course, are mostly going to be Russians for the most part, but it doesn't mean that people within the empire are gonna have different dialects, different cultures, different customs um, that they're gonna bring with them, but they're still allowed to exist to a certain degree, obviously in a more subordinate role uh, within this empire. So when it comes to a place like uh, Ukraine, which is a complicated region, even up until this point, you have uh, people in the south who identify as Tatars, who are sort of a Turkic group that had been there for hundreds of years. Um, you have another group that sort of, um, uh, it, this is a very complicated issue, whether we kind of identify them eth ethnically or not, but Cossacks, which is sort of a rebel group that lived in the southern plains uh, or central and southern plains of Ukraine um, as well. Um, and then to the and then to the west, a more distinct dialect over time, which had not been codified yet by, by the time these lands had been uh, brought into the Russian Imperial Empire. Um, but people who are speaking sort of a different version of a Slavic uh, of a Slavic dialect and are going to have, again, some different cultural customs. Um, so these Ukrainian lands are going to be under Russian control basically until um, until 1917, right? Until 1917, 1918, until we see the collapse of the Russian uh, of the Russian Imperial um, Empire. Um, but it's in the 19th century, which is no mistake that it's the 19th century because this is uh, a time in which. Um, uh, throughout Europe, you're going to see uh, a lot of different groups begin to uh, self-identify in a different way and begin this process of creating a nation. Uh, and then, in, and if they're lucky, um, founding their own state as well, in which in which this nation will uh, will live. Um, and this is no different with a little bit later in the Ukrainian case, but this is no different for them as well, um, where we're going to see people as a part of the intellectual elites, the intelligentsia, um, writers, thinkers, poets. Um, who are going to begin to kind of craft uh, and build a conception of a nation. Um, and again, it, we've often this term, you, you, your listeners may have heard this, this term, you hear a lot about the creation of, of modern of modern nations as imagined communities in which people are sort of forced to kind of fill in a lot of gaps and pretend uh, and often and often uh, make up a lot of things to fill in some of these gaps. Uh, but it's also important to keep in mind that they're not imagined doesn't mean that they're completely making everything up, that they're often working with a lot of material that's already there, a distinct dialect, distinct culture and customs that are maybe different from some of their neighbors. Um, so we're going to see that process as well happen um, predominantly 1870s and 1880s often emanating out of this Western part of Ukraine, uh, where we see kind of uh, a new kind of nationalism emerge there or conceptions of nation, uh, which they're going to contest uh, seeing themselves and kind of being treated in this subordinate position to the Russian empire in which they're had Ukrainians had been referred to as little Russians for a large part of the 19th century, or I would say 18th and 19th century um, as a kind of um, somewhat, maybe, maybe the Russians didn't mean to be pejorative, but largely pejorative term of understanding that these are just 
just another Slavic group that happens to be a little bit different than us, That is, but it's basically some version of us. Um, these intellectuals, and as well as a lot of people are going to follow them and become involved in this kind of process of actualizing a national identity, are going to challenge this and say, we're actually our own unique people and have and should have our own unique destiny and should be able to create our own state and make decisions about who we are now the russian imperial empire is not going to the the czar and the leadership empire is not going to buy into that idea uh, but we're going to see that really sort of um, come to come to a head and we're going to see this sort of tension explode in and around this again extremely confusing moment around the russian revolution the the the, the end of well the collapse of the kind of the eastern front in world war one um, and then various different groups within these projects trying to kind of claim a new ukrainian uh, a new ukrainian state yeah wow um yeah man it's uh uh and again you're doing a, a, a great job simplifying something that is really everything but simple here so um yeah. but yeah that's a it's a it's really clear um i mean the amount of of you know, so I, and I'm learning this too, like in, in real time, uh, and I'm sure uh, a lot of people that will listen to this are as well in terms of the amount of like different groups, um, you know, that are in that region and how it can um, be very different, I guess, like village to village. So, I mean, that that's, yeah. it, it makes sense that, um, you know, that some, of course, as time goes, as like these cultures develop uh, their own styles and they're on their own time that, um, yeah, you know, someone's going to wake up one day and be like, how come we are in our own state? And, um, yeah, so that, I, I feel like that definitely, um, again, like helps explain like the, the, the core. Cause I think when you see something like this, uh, what's happening now, um, it's really easy to simplify it as in like, oh, like Putin woke up one day and was like, all right, fuck it. We're just, I'm, I'm angry. And, but like, mm -hmm. you know, obviously this, this is stemming back to hundreds and hundreds of years of regional tension. Um, and I'm sure we'll get back to the history, but um, now coming back to the, the present time, I'm kind of um, interested in how maybe you personally, as, as things were, um, you know, ramping up uh, with everything that you know, um, because, you know, I, 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 of course, like over the years, um, there's always been uh, 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 threats or um, uh, suspicions of, of tension. But with this ramping up, I know sometime like early February, and then a lot of us became aware of it in late February, obviously, like, um, was this, as you were seeing it ramping up, did it seem different to you? Did this seem like a more serious um, situation that was going on than like maybe prior years? Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, so some of the, the way I usually talk about this, I um, talk about it kind of through, a, through my own teaching. And I, I was first on a, a postdoc teaching fellowship in, um, oh God, must have been 2015. And I was teaching, I have a, a class I teach called Mass Violence and the Borderlands and this kind of Eastern Borderland region, including not just Ukraine, but the larger strip of, of border, Borderlands um, in Eastern Europe. And I remember the first time I taught this class, I added the, it was the, the war in the Don Pass had already started. We were sort of the post-revolution phase. And I had added, I had asked the students if they wanted a class on the current conflict and it was confusing to them then. Um, and I said, sure, I'll happy to do that. It's a kind of interesting position as a historian. Most of our 
courses and lectures and what we do often ends you know, at least a few decades ago is always a joke about when when uh, when history actually begins for historians uh, you know was it five years ago 10 years ago or 20 but um and but obviously you're a teacher and these are teaching moments to to um to talk about things and we can talk about issues in the present as historians in our own way that's different from political scientists or, or journalists or other folks so so i included that then and then i've taught this class at ucla a number of times over the last few years and so i kind of update this lecture every year um as i'm doing it because at least every crop of student you know students wants to sort of understand what's been going on there since 2014 which is kind of on back on people's radars most most people for the first time since me i don't know maybe 1991 or even even or chernobyl maybe um so that's something i've been doing and then this year i was teaching the same class this winter and i actually showed uh, it was the final lecture was in early December and I showed a slide of the, this, uh, I did the, I did the usual class and I showed a slide of the aerial footage of, you know, one of the satellite photos of the Russian buildup on the Belarus border. And I like probably a lot of other, I, I would say the vast majority of people uh, in my, in my field had not really considered uh, the fact that a full-scale invasion would take place. Um, at the time, it seemed like there were a number of things on the table and, and the buildup was obviously concerning, um, but there also had been, I'm gonna get some of my years, my years mixed up. I think last year there had been a minor buildup that had caused some concern. Um, so there'd been, this is this kind of, these sort of provocations and these kind of chess moves that are done in these conflicts was not unusual. I think the size of the buildup was concerning. And then there's, there's a question here, whether we all misunderstood Putin or the situation, um, or maybe we did understand it, but it was the kind of, you know, human emotional aspect of not wanting to come to terms with the fact that the worst thing could happen. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think as we kind of got closer to the moment where it became apparent, at least in the weeks before, where, I mean, I would say at least a couple of weeks before the invasion happened, it was clear that this was just going to happen. Um, but that sort of denial, I think, in a lot of us, given our emotional and you know, whatever, uh, interpersonal ties to the region almost maybe went stronger of this, like this can't happen. Um, this mm -hmm. version of things won't happen. Um, and, and to be fair to us, I think a lot of us considered the fact that there were a lot of other options on the table at the time um, that probably would have served the, you know, the um, highly problematic and disturbing goals of, of whatever Russia wanted at the time, but there were a lot of options that would have served them much better than the one that they actually took. Um, and so that was really, I think, also a point of kind of shock and confusion of it wasn't as if this was some sort of terrible option that we all didn't want, but knew would probably be the thing that, that Putin wants. Um, in fact, it was choosing an option that was the worst for everyone involved, um, which is almost made it even more shocking. Um, and that's been borne out. I mean, it wasn't necessarily, it didn't have to go the way that it's gone over the last couple of months. Obviously, uh, the heroism of Ukrainians to fight back an invasion of their country is what's made it what it is. Um, it didn't have to be this way, but regardless of that, even you know, even at the moment, this seemed like a, just a completely insane thing to do. Um, and is maybe, maybe I should say it's still it's still it's still an insane thing to have done, but made even more more insane by the fact by the ferocity by which Ukrainians have defended themselves, and, and which is not a, which is not a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know, you know, with 
um, everything going on now, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the more that I learn about it, the more that I realize that I have um, a very, I guess, um, uh, limited or even like uh, American way of understanding the fundamental concept of war in that, um, at least in my lifetime, uh, the major event that I've seen is, um, you know, the, our, the conflict in the Middle East and um, how, you know, um, and then of course learning about uh, uh, U.S.'s uh, involvement in conflicts. Um, I, I think we as um, uh, American citizens understand uh, war with like, um, with like very clear um, uh, like business reasons why or um you would you know uh what well, no regardless of your opinion you think you're going to this region for oil or uh you know to prevent you know this region from having weapons of mass destruction the, the list goes on and so i guess um from how i understand war it seemed to to be this you know i guess in a weird way not quite personal which is then what makes it what makes it I think that's what makes it difficult to understand conflicts like Israel and Palestine and Russia and Ukraine and where like the there's like a very personal cultural dislike between these two parties of people um, and like the the desire to want to like wipe out an entire like culture for very per personal reasons is something that is also foreign uh, um, uh, to me and I think you know, and I know that you focused on uh, things like genocide and, and whatnot. So, you know, if, if you can help, I guess, shed some light on um, maybe these personal aspects that we don't understand here in the States between like this the animosity between Russia and Ukraine. So, yeah, that's all. Well, there's, a, I guess, a couple different directions to go to go in here. I mean, from the Russian side and I mean, but maybe I'll just start from the top down. I mean, so from the Russian side, obviously, we this is a at this point, it's very safe to say that this is authoritarian government. It's a, it's a dictatorship at this point. Um, well, probably been a dictatorship for a long time now. Um, this is a dictatorship. So most of in, in situations like this, um, obviously, there is no checks and balances. There is no you know, the Duma, which is their Congress, has no role at all. Um, and even the kind of concentric concert, uh, circles emanating out from the center of the, of the person himself, of Putin, has actually shrunk as far as we know in recent years as well. So when we talk talk about motivations and what's driving uh, the Russians to undertake this extremely risky um, and just absolutely horrific assault uh, on on another nation, we're often going to ask questions about the personality of the leader. And this is what you know, this is what's going to go into the you know, this is going to go into the calculus here. Um, and in this sense, it's been there's been a lot of interesting debate and conversation among scholars and well as other interested parties, uh, government folks, journalists, and other people um, in the region over the last couple of months. And if you remember, a lot, initially, a lot of the debate was about um, this, you know, these questions about NATO, right, and whether you know, everyone was kind of scrambling to remember what, what when NATO was created, what it did, um, was it really a threat to Russia, and then were these grievances about NATO really real uh, from Putin's side, and then NATO was sort of largely representative of 
kind of just general security concerns in the region uh, and Russia, you know, the the quote unquote right of Russia to have decision, you know, to, to participate in decisions about what happens along its borders, uh, whether it's in the Caucasus, as there was a war against Georgia in 2008, Central Asia, the Baltics, of which there's been a lot of an animosity over time. Um, so that kind of was a, a larger question um, there that a lot of people debated. Are these concerns, you know, are these concerns, uh, security concerns actually real? Um, are they legitimate in any way? Um, how do they compare to security concerns of other countries? And then if, even if they are legitimate, is this, an, is this a rational or reasonable way to respond to them? Because often the point was brought up, as I just brought up, is you probably just made your, your quote unquote security uh, question or situation even worse uh, by what you've just done by killing a bunch of people in, your, in a neighboring country and, right. and, and basically rallying all of the people who uh, were already probably in, um, uh, antagonistic towards you to come together, which is what we actually have seen and, and perhaps the, the calculation that it wasn't actually there. And then the other thing, which has been this kind of deeper, longer term uh, cultural issue uh, about, on one hand, as you kind of put it, this kind of this uh, almost personal element of distaste and distrust and dislike of, of Ukrainians uh, from coming from Putin himself, uh, often very speaking of the, uh, speaking of uh, Ukrainians in often very derogatory terms, claiming that they never had any conception of a nation or never had um, any sort of um, uh, you know they, they were never they were never a true peoples or separate peoples from Russians or never had their own state you know all of which statements are highly um, um, highly problematic um, and so that. That was part of it as well, and something that people, he's been on the record of saying a number of these things, that he said these things, a number of these speak before the war. So that was pretty, that was pretty clear that that seemed to also be to animating um, some of his behavior, this kind of a very just generally chauvinistic view towards Ukrainians, which some, uh, if not many Russians still have to this day. Um, and then on the other side, the kind of something that I think sort of is uh, kind of crosses even uh, this kind of present period that we find ourselves in, the kind of the you know, post uh, post Cold War, post Soviet period in Russia, but this larger kind of conception of uh, of Russians uh, uh, a, a Russian view that they have a right to dominate this territory or the territories along their borders, and we would kind of either refer to this in in, in terms of colonialism uh, or in in terms of imperialism. You can use these in some cases interchangeably, as some a lot of people have. Um, and that, that that's what's driving Putin as well. That this is really the security this the security concerns. And I should also add the grievances against the West about these security concerns. That this is really just window dressing for what is kind of a deeply ingrained cultural view or in some ways a kind of a general kind of imperialistic view about how to think about Ukrainians, which is not unique to Putin himself. He's not the only person who has this view. Lots of Russian elites or common Russian people have this view. And that dates back to the experience of the 20th century, the experience of the 19th century, um, and that this is something that just is carried on to the present, and that that is what's driving these actions. Now, 
I, the short version, at least my own opinion would be, there's a little bit of truth in all of these things. I, I think, I, I think that there are, there are some grievances about security concerns. I don't, I don't find them to be legitimate. There are in there, and there is certainly elements of chauvinism and imperialism uh, that were driving these decisions as well. So a lot of people have kind of been debating this, these short and long-term factors about, you know, what exactly is driving these Russian, Russian actions and why would you, you know, why exactly would you even, and maybe this is also kind of to your question, how would you even conceptualize the ability to undertake the actions that you're doing against your neighbors? Mm. Um, and you would, again, if you if you put it in terms of, well, we need to do this to survive, which is often how a lot of countries justify their wars, and that's how we justify our wars in the United States, even though we're traveling halfway around the war, the world to fight them, um, we're justifying it on uh, the, the ability to exist, uh, which is probably, I think, hopefully most people agree is problematic, usually. Um, and then, so the Russians are doing that. And then um, also, um, also in terms of, we just don't think of you as equals, or we don't, you know, or you, or um, not only that you're not equals, but you've been not acting in, in a proper way, especially in recent years, since the Maidan revolution, um, even dating back to the Orange Revolution in 2005, so you've been a kind of a source of trouble uh, and pain for us. And so therefore we we're left with no choice, but to sort of take matters into our own hands, uh, which is uh, obviously deeply and utterly uh, disturbing. Now from the Ukrainian side, and this is what I think maybe average listeners or people kind of tuning in and out of this stuff over the years is really hard to understand is, you know, you, and, and, and also given the media that we, that we see that, that we see today, I mean, Ukraine was not, especially for the better part of this post-Soviet period there, as I've already mentioned, there was a rich tradition of resistance against occupiers, whether they be Soviet, Polish, um, German or others, there's a rich tradition of resistance in the culture, especially in the Western part of the country. Um, there's a rich tradition of understanding themselves unique, uniquely as different from Russians, as different from Poles, and as different from other people. Um, but it's a large country, um, and there are a lot of parts of. And this is when we didn't get to this in the early part of the the early part of the conversation. There are a lot of parts of the country that still hold either neutral or sometimes positive views of Russian and Russian culture, um, and sort of. There's a lot of reasons to how to explain that. Obviously, being a part of someone's empire for the better part of a couple hundred years uh, is going to uh, is going to have there's going to be a culturation process in which you're going to be sometimes either forced or just by by nature of the relationships and of subordination over time, learn and adopt the language of the occupiers, obviously. Irish people don't speak Irish. Well, some of them do still, but they speak English. Right. We've seen this in other places around the globe. Um, so without necessarily pulling all of that apart, it's just something worth noting that in, in the South, um, in these Southern regions, especially the, ironically enough, you know, horrifically enough, the ones being destroyed right now, um, and, and the Crimea, and as well as this Donbass region, these have been, and they're also happen to be the places closest to Russia, so they've been kind of contact zones, and these have been kind of places of, of uh, of you know more symbiotic relationships between what we might conceptualize as two different peoples, um, these places um, often had majority positive views of of Russians. It didn't necessarily now it doesn't mean that they were all considered themselves to be Russians. Most of those people consider themselves, even in the Donbass, considered themselves as Ukrainians. Ukrainians who speak Russian and have a generally positive view of Russia, 
don't want to be a part of NATO and mixed views on the EU. Um, towards more toward the central part of the country, this was a little bit mixed, though this began to shift since 2014. And then in these kind of this southern region by Odessa, Mariupol, which we all now know in, in the news, Kherson, and then Crimea, which is also kind of a special case, similar such views, Russian speaking, more positive view, uh, more positive view of Russia. Um, so you have you know, you have a very kind of extremely complicated layout of in the West, almost completely hostile to Russian uh, part of the country. The center, much more in recent years, kind of more pro-West or, or at least anti-Russian. And then in these other regions, the South and the East, it's kind of um, there's a, it was a more positive view. Now, these events, as I just said, since 2014, this revolution, the war that started in the Donbass, and, and then, of course, an invasion of the country, I think we'll largely see. Uh, a bigger shift. We're going to see a shift over. I mean, I would be shocked if we did not see a shift over time of attitudes towards Russia as becoming more and more negative, which also goes back to the point made earlier of why would you undertake a full scale invasion of a country in which, you know, under the guise of kind of helping these regions that you see as as more pro-Russian, uh, destroying these regions and killing these people. Um, this, this, I, you know, I don't, I, you know, it's kind of a, almost a kind of a macabre thing to say, but I mean, what would, what would be the opinion polling in Mariupol today about pro-Russian sentiment, right? This is a city that you just absolutely wiped off the face of the, uh, of the map, which would have probably more pro-Russian sentiment than most of the other cities in, in, in the country up until uh, February. So it's just an absolutely, um, it's, it's, it's an absolutely uh, just insane thing to have done and, 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 and absolutely horrific as well, um, what we've seen coming out of um, uh, the war. Yeah, and it, and it seems like, um, uh, you know, it, at least how I understand improvisation on, uh, as a musician, I mean, even improv is done on purpose. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if you uh, fail improvising in music, uh, it's not the end of the world. No one dies. Right. But it, it seems like in war or in conflict that that you know, improvising is especially dangerous because from what, you know, uh, it seems like everyone agrees that Putin and, you know, whoever helps him with his strategy um, that the intel that they had, uh, they were under the impression that they would like be in and out of there in like two or three days, um, yeah. or that you know the whole thing would just be done in a matter of days. And right, uh, yeah. So it sounds like you know um, to then move forward in a way where it's like, okay, well that plan didn't work, and I guess now just you know throwing stuff at the wall, um, just trying to you know, it's 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 interesting because I, I think every day. There seems to be from uh, all sides, uh, the, the U.S., um, countries in NATO, uh, Russia and Ukraine. It's like how far how far can all these uh, uh, NATO countries support Ukraine without directly being involved? Um, how sure. far can Russia c take it before taking it too far, even though they've already gone too far? Um, and yeah. So it's just it's complex in that like um, you know and I and I I'm curious if like obviously your understanding of the history if there's any way to then try to understand what would at this point today what would returning to some peaceful like what does that even look like? Sure. 
Yeah, no, and that's, it's, uh, I guess it's sort of, it's been the million dollar question for a while now, and it also changes by the, by week by week, as we've seen the the conflict really evolve, uh, especially over the last three or four weeks, it's taken a dramatic turn. Um, and yeah, there's no, there's no easy, there's no easy answer, um, because we don't, and I, as I say, kind of, to go back to an, another earlier point, we don't, we can't necessarily get into the mind of Putin and, and a person who is sort of, as far as we understand, unilaterally managing uh, a war. And historically, when uh, dictators and uh, who often themselves tend to be very unstable for uh, for, for obvious reasons, uh, when dictators are 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 uh, carrying out uh, wars under uh, under under themselves alone, um, whether especially including uh, not necessarily uh, the diplomacy and, and the governmental aspects, but military aspects as well, um, it can be a really dangerous uh, and um, it could be a really dangerous situation, and so. In this, in our, in the scenarios we see it right now, understanding what Putin is willing to kind of um, accept, uh, which, I mean, I should also maybe pre- preface this by saying, is is one premise of understanding how the war ends that there's going to be some sort of diplomatic effort on the part of Ukrainians and Russians, and that people are going to have to make on both sides, which is how conflicts ends. People are going to both have to make some sort of concession, and there has to be some sort of peace agreement signed. Um, there, there are other views, and this is something we've seen more in recent weeks, right, is is that there's views from some in Washington, and of course, from among Ukrainians, which I uh, completely, I sympathize with the views, is that perhaps with enough weaponry and support that they can push the Russians out for good. Um, now, I'm not, and, and that becomes the end of the conflict. We have pushed you out of our country and kind of one in a greater sense of not one in the sense that we've defended our, our our state from an invasion and the government did not collapse. The state still stands. The government stands. Um, their independence stands. Uh, but one in the sense that we've removed all of the Russians from our territory. And I'm not a military expert. I, you know, the military experts I do listen to seem to think that that would be extremely hard to do. Uh, and that would take a long time. That might be a war of attrition. And um, the, the Russians are better positioned uh, in the long run to fight that off, but I don't know, we'll see. Um, but so assuming that's not the case and there has to be some sort of deal made diplomatically. And, and I don't know, it depends how much detail you want me to go into, but this would, I mean, this would largely concern for the most part it, at this point would, con, would concern concessions specifically dealing with this region called the Donbass in the east and then potentially the south. And so one of the big questions right now and allegedly some Russian journal uh, g- general at a uh, weapons uh, weapons uh, manufacturer uh, conference made some comment about they want to kind of carve out not only the Donbass in the east, which again borders Russia, but this kind of southern tier and link up, it's kind of hard to describe these things uh, over uh, visually, but uh, kind of link up this southern, the southern part of the country with Transnistria, which is a breakaway region in Moldova. Um, but this, the, the short of this is it would basically cut off um, Ukraine from the sea, from the Black Sea, um, and that they would kind of occupy the southern tier, and that would connect with the, with the Donbass, and of course you have Crine- the peninsula of Crimea uh, there as well. Um, that this is being offered as what the Russian military goals are. And so the question is, even assuming that's the goal or even just a full kind of occupation of the Donbass, one, are they able to kind of accomplish that militarily in terms of losses, in terms of whatever pressures might emanate under a dictatorship? 
at, at, at home um, and and then what what are the kind of Ukrainian position and what they're willing um, to concede in the long run and and it's hard to say but there's you know initially there were discussions about these regions in the Donbass again these more pro-Russian regions although I would I would I would I would be hard to it'd be hard to say that that's still a case to this day but these more pro-Russian regions having more autonomy within a Ukrainian state or kind of being given special status. Um, you know, this, this happens in a number of different states. Um, Russia even has this for some of their own uh, uh, kind of regions within their country, that they be given some sort of very special status within the country. Um, these were also tied to something called the Minsk II agreements that were um, this kind of ceasefire agreement from 2015 that was supposed to eventually lead to peace and some sort of agreement about this ongoing conflict, which never really resolved in the Donbass, um, it just kind of reactivated in a new way during the current war. Um, and so those are usually the kind of main points of contention, although now, it, now at least from this perspective, looks as if the Russians are not going to be content unless they have you know, sort of broken off these regions completely from Ukraine. And whether that includes the South or not, we don't know. Um, but that's that I don't, it's a hard, we have a hard time seeing the Ukrainian government going along with that, just the same way most governments would not say, you know, you can have, um, you know, yeah, you know, Canada, you can have the state of Maine, um, that, um, you know, that would not, that would not necessarily go over too well. So, um, so it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's really hard. It's hard, it's hard to say right now, but obviously to your, to your, the first part of your question, this point about, um, all of the kind of moving pieces. And even this week, we just saw them shut off gas to Poland and Hungary as a kind of this economic retaliation. All, and, and, and we also saw the US send in more weapons and obviously the Secretary of State uh, visited. So it, there's so many moving pieces. That's why it's really, I would say it's, it's hard for people who do this for a living, but it's certainly hard for historians to be predicting the future, but there's just so many moving pieces that it's, 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 it's difficult to know where we're going to be even two or three weeks. I mean, I, I think most of emanates out of the military situation that's going to inform a lot of the universe around it about who's going to do what or what moves are going to be made. That's partly, that's partly, uh, uh, predicated on what happens with the military situation, which is what we saw again, even in the first week of the war. If it, if Kiev had fallen uh, in the first week of the war, we wouldn't be sending weapons there right now. Probably not, at least. Um, with everything, the whole conversation would have been different. But the military situation, the defense of the country, changed the narrative, right? And then, and now we're living in that world, right? Yeah. So, what world we're going to be living in in a couple weeks, maybe after we see what's happening with the kind of the new. The new center of gravity, which is now that we're going to be the war in the east, uh, will probably tell us more about what's happening. Um, but I should say it's it's still it's still scary. And I and and maybe you're I don't know if you're if the listeners are interested in this or if this is something that they've thought about. But I mean the, the you know the first few weeks of war, I think a lot of people were scared given the kind of um, you know it's, it's a new thing. It's obviously horrific. It's 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 upsetting. And then you have at least at least uh, well one nuclear power involved and then one backing the other side and so a lot of those I, that was scary but then over time i think we you know we all kind of acclimate to things to a degree even though i'm still you know very concerned about uh friends and other people there but it's still very much part of my daily existence but we acclimate to a degree and then every now and then i think even in the last couple of weeks i've just had a couple moments of thought where i said to myself this is still a very scary situation that can also spiral out of control at any moment given we have very un stable actor involved um and and so it's still 
It's 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 still just as scary and dangerous now as it was eight weeks ago. We just I think a kind of public perception or even on a personal level, it, it you, you're not thinking about it in the same way anymore. So yeah, yeah. and um, you know again, there's uh, so much that um, you could uh, you know that that could be unpacked. I'm sure you know if you <laughs> if you go back like every year in history, you could probably have like a separate podcast episode for like everything that happened in like a five year right. chunk, you know, but hell, maybe even one, but, um, I guess, uh, you know, before, you know, you're, you're, um, uh, we let you go. I think, um, maybe lastly, uh, what, um, you know, and, and it, obviously it, it's funny because you're, you're a historian and, but I think that, that I think understanding the history gives, uh, you guys like probably the most unique perspective on the present and, and why this stuff is happening, you know, and that being said, um, is there anything that you are, um, you know, as this unfolds, um, are there things that you've already seen that maybe you're particularly keeping an eye on, whether that's like the, the cultural impacts of all this in the region or just the humanitarian aspects, but, um, yeah, it'd just be interesting to see like what um, wh what maybe you might be prioritizing um, in terms of like paying attention to as this is all unfolding. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I'm going to give a kind of think through this as I answer. Um, so up front, I would say it's been it's been hard to have it's been hard to kind of have that bird's eye view thought about a lot of things given. Um, just given the horror of the conflict and and, and everything that that's in, entailed, so it's in some ways it's been it's been hard to be reflective. Some people are better at this than than, than others, uh, given the moment. So I would say you know, the most immediate thing, obviously, is is concern around people I know, but also even people I don't know, just because I, I care very much about the country and its people. So I you know I have a colleague, uh, I have a colleague who got stuck, who was actually in Romania before the. War started. She's a historian, and she was unable to go home. Um, and even she was in Romania for the better part of the last couple of months, and now just relocated somewhere else. And so, even there's just kind of fallout on uh, the personal level is, and, and and just people we know and we care about, and other scholars as well, people are connected to. I mean, that is still being, you know, that is obviously still very much in flux. I was just listening to a podcast today about situ situation of some of the refugees in Poland. And so I think, you know, on that level, that's kind of the the first thing. And, and just thinking about, yeah, thinking it, it's it's really hard. You see some of these numbers and like something like 700,000 people were in, in Poland and, you know, over a million in general. And it's just hard to really wrap your mind around how many lives have been disrupted, how many you know, soccer practices are canceled or, or, or you know, school being missed and all these events. It's, it's so, and and I even think about just, again, the, the handful of people I'm very close to and how their lives have been disrupted. And it's it's so hard to even, it's just so hard to process it. It's, it's almost, it's just unimaginable to process. And so, um, and then another close colleague, uh, is that was was um, was drafted to fight because um, uh, he had actually been, uh, he served in the in the Soviet army in the pe previous period, so he was on recruitment lists. And this is someone who is a, a well-known historian and 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 much older. Um, and so, so on a personal level, it's just the day-to-day -day is just kind of 
um, wanting to see a resolution just because we want the war to end. I'd want all the wars to end, but this war to end just so people I know and I care about are safe and yeah. they can go back to their lives. Um, and, and in terms of bigger picture, yeah, I, I mean, maybe just to, to riff on something we already mentioned so far. I mean, this this question about the orientation and and the direction of the country moving forward. And so, as as I said, this is a place with a lot of different regions, a lot of different viewpoints on the direction Ukraine should go in the future, how it should orient itself. And, you know, we didn't even talk about things like language policy. And, and, and a lot of this gets played out in the history books and in classrooms and things like this. And so um, it'll be really, maybe in the short to long term, it'll be interesting to see, um, it'll be interesting to see perceptions of, of Russia uh, moving forward, especially after this, uh, this act of ag- aggression. Is this going to kind of really uh, is it going to bring the country together in a new way in, in, in which, which in some ways 2014, these events since then have, um, have kind of consolidated some issues around language, um, culture, uh, and yeah, and kind of national identity. Is, is this going to be, is this going to kind of push it over the edge? Is this going to be like a really just kind of a defining moment in which we're going to see a really kind of hard break uh, with um, kind of cultural ties to, to Russia? Um, so I think that is that's one thing. And then another concern will even just be, and this is not, I mean, not to be kind of negative or concerned, but just to see the stability of the Russian government. I mean, the Russian government, the Ukrainian government, because this is something that um, uh, there's been a lot of back and forth. I'm not going to get into the whole post but there's been a lot of back and forth. There's been um, a lot of kind of uh, positive, there's been some positive figures and a lot of negative figures of people who are running the government. You know, are we going to come out of this war and, and come on the other side and see a strong and stable Ukrainian government that's going to be able to kind of deliver the things it needs to to, um, to its people? Or is it going to be, um, or are we going to kind of see a fallout from this um, in a negative way? And I don't, you know, I don't think anybody wants to see that, but that that's something that scares me in the sense of, um, and again, thinking just more broadly about wars and conflicts and how they can undercut stability in society, but it's often not the first blow or the second blow um, or the first year or the second year, but sort of down the line. Um, Zelensky, of course, is a hero now for what he's done, and, and he should, I think he should be viewed as a hero, but if we this gets protracted into a two or three year long war uh, and where lots of Ukrainians continue to die defending the country, where you know there's a humanitarian crisis in the country um, that could lead to a scary situation in which other other groups are kind of um, you know more problematic groups might try to take over. Um, so that's something that I am hoping will not happen, and that there will be sort of maybe the positive side be uh, more quite a more um, an inclusive and welcoming uh, and, and positive uh, view of self-identity, a strong and stable government that will provide for people, make sure they get their paychecks, make sure they get taken care of. Um, you know, th- those are the, those are the things we want to see for Ukraine moving forward. Um, but the war, um, in many ways, uh, could threaten that, or it could change it for the, or maybe it will change it for the positive too. Um, uh, this is certainly not the way to go about accomplishing these things, but maybe, you know, well, that'll yet, yet to be seen. So maybe those are just a couple of things I might say were on my radar. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, um, I mean, man, I, 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 I really wish the best to, to your colleagues, your friends that are directly, um, dealing with the situation. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't realize how many of my own friends had, uh, ties to people in this region or people in media mm-hmm. that cover this region. And we've already lost, um, 
a lot of people that have been on the ground just covering this war for one right. reason or the other. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of um, um, there's definitely going to be um, a, a massive uh, impact um, in in so many communities. I mean, I mean, even seeing how this is impacting like Russian American uh, communities, Ukrainian American communities. Sure. Um, so. Yeah, uh, of course, as, as this stuff goes on, we're all hoping um, for um, a, a peaceful re- resolution, even though it might be difficult to even imagine what that looks like. But, you know, that's, that's definitely what we need. Um, well, man, I, I, I really can't, you know, thank you enough for uh, making the time to, to come on here. Because, again, I think, um, you know, the, the fact that we, from beginning to end, we made it all the way without... Uh, you know, saying something like, and this is why you should vote for this, or this is why you should sure, hate this sure, person. You know, it's sure, like, sure. it's, 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 it's rare um, today. And um, yeah, it's just, it's great to just learn about something for what it is. So I uh, really appreciate your time. And, sure. um, and yeah, for, for people listening, um, you know, if you want to learn more about uh, Dr. McBride, um, you know, you can, of course, Google him like all things. You can look him up on uh, UCLA. Um, do you have a website? No, I don't have one. But I'm on, I'm on, I'm on Twitter for whatever that's worth, or okay. <laughs> for whatever it's worth for for, for right now. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, people. I'm obviously public public facing profile at UCLA since it's a public university, and yeah, I'm always uh, I do public I do public lectures and talks and panels, and I'm always and I try to respond to um all of my all of my emails uh from from anybody so that's i think part of my part of my job regardless of what some of my colleagues may think but uh uh but yes i'm always happy to reach out to anybody or to be be a part of any other future conversations um and i appreciate you taking the time to talk about this on on your podcast and and hopefully to yes to like you like we began with today but speaking to different audiences than you know perhaps the the two or three that i usually speak to so i'm very happy to be here yeah likewise man um so yeah for everyone listening uh thank you um this is a song called life and or out hello everyone This podcast episode is sponsored by Arbor Vitae Wellness Center here in Santa Monica, California, where they offer services such as chiropractic care, physical therapy, acupuncture, and massage therapy. A lot of you have heard me talk about injuries I've dealt with on the podcast, and I reached out to Arbor Vitae a few months ago to get help with my neck and back pain, and the owner, Dr. Gerges, we call him Dr. G., Uh, He's done nothing short of an amazing job. He didn't just help relieve the physical pain, uh, but he showed me how the mental and spiritual aspects of my life are important to maintain for my physical health. A lot of you guys that listen to the podcast are musicians, athletes, or dancers, and we regularly get aches and pains, and it's so important to get help from somewhere like Arbor Vitae that takes the time to understand our demanding lifestyles. And... I mean, no matter what you do, we're all spending time sitting down every day. You know, we're on our computers, we're driving and whatnot. So if you just want to feel better in general, Arbor Vitae Wellness Center is the place for you.
All right, let's get this episode started.